Hi, I'm Annabelle Gonzalez, non-resident senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to Tradewinds, our new bi-weekly virtual event series where we will explore the future of global commerce in the era of the COVID-19 pandemic with leading policymakers and experts from across the world. Today, in our first session, we will discuss a topic that lies at the heart of the future of global trade and investment, which is the disruption of global value chains and the role of international trade cooperation. And to lead our discussion, we have not two, but actually three great speakers. First, the Honorable Mary Ng, Canada's Minister of International Trade, Small Business and Expert Promotion, also a member of Parliament. She is joined by Ambassador Stephen DeBoer, Canada's Ambassador and Permanent Representative to the World Trade Organization in Geneva, who will take over from Minister Ng as she leads later for a cabinet meeting. Minister Ng and Ambassador DeBoer have been at the forefront of Canada's in initiatives to foster trade cooperation in these challenging times, and we will hear more about that. And last but not least, we have our own Jeffrey Schott, Senior Fellow at the Pearson Institute, who has written extensively on international trade issues since 1983, and is for me and many others, a great source of expertise. So welcome to the three of you, and thank you very much for being with us at Tradewinds. Let me share uh, a few details uh, on our program. Minister Ng and Jeff will deliver some initial remarks to frame our conversation. We will then engage in a dialogue with all speakers. And I also hope to take a couple of questions from you in the audience. Uh, so please get ready to submit them using the Q&A tool. So on to our business. In the pre-COVID-19 world, trade conflicts, new technologies, and geopolitical competition were already reshaping global value chains. Goods producing supply chains had become less trade intensive and more regionally concentrated, while trading service was growing much faster than trading goods, boosted in part by digital technologies. International trade cooperation, fundamental to underpin cross-border production networks, was faltering. With managed trade gaining traction, greater fragmentation of trade rules and weakening global governance, the WTO was under strain and the business environment more uncertain and volatile. In this context comes COVID-19, wrecking havoc on supply chains and trade. Forced reduction in production as a result of containment measures, steep decline in sectors such as automobiles or textiles and sharp increases in others such as medical gear, transportation disruptions, and unprecedented business uncertainty risked the breakdown of some of these production networks with increased unemployment and other dire consequences. So COVID-19 has brought to the forefront the key question of how to improve risk management in supply chain systems focused on optimization with little flexibility to absorb disruptions. Or more plainly, how to make sure that demand can be met with supply even in extraordinary circumstances like COVID-19 or terrorist attacks or natural disasters or others. In the current context, trade policy has both helped and hindered the situation. According to the joint initiative between the Global Trade Alert, the European University Institute and the World Bank, a total of 97 governments had liberalized trade in medical products and medicines implementing a total of 142 reforms since early this year. In contrast, 85 governments have imposed 156 export controls. So at this point, the real risk is that as businesses rethink their global value chains, unilateral measures, buy local policies, import restrictions, export curbs, and other protectionist policies will get in the way of using trade to bring goods from where they are produced to where they are needed. And it is hard to think that even in a sector like medical goods or medicines, one country can produce everything it needs to fight a pandemic, not to say the cost impact such a decision would have if feasible. So how can international trade cooperation help governments refrain from politically appealing but self-defeating policies? Moreover, 
how can it help fight the current wave and future waves of COVID-19 and to recover from the pandemic? Is there a role for the WTO amid all its challenges in facilitating reversal of damaging measures and adopting new frameworks to promote greater trade cooperation? So to help us address some of these questions, let me now turn over to Minister uh, Ng. And again, Minister, thank you very much. Uh, and, uh, and we're very grateful that you're here with us at TradeWinds. Thank, thank you so very much. Uh, and good morning, everyone. Um, Annabelle, that was a wonderful introduction. And I wanna thank you and the team at the Peterson Institute for International Economics for bringing us all together, albeit virtually. Um, it's a pleasure to be able to share the stage uh, virtually with you, Annabelle, of course, with Jeff and, uh, and my uh, wonderful colleague, uh, Ambassador DeBoer. I apologize that I uh, you know, can't be here for as long as I would have liked to. Uh, we, I, have to uh, I have to rush off to a, a cabinet meeting, so, uh, so I'm going to spend as much time as I possibly can. And it's wonderful to be here as part of the debut episode of Trade Winds, and I certainly will be looking forward to following future episodes. And, uh, you know, as you've highlighted, we know, Annabelle, that um, this is a challenging time for people around the world and that citizens and business owners are worried about what's going to come next. Our government believes that supporting people economically at the same time as protecting their health is the best way to help Canadians through this extraordinary time. We've taken decisive action to help businesses keep their costs low, their teams together, and to provide them with the funds that they need to keep up with their operations, even while many have had to close or scale back their operations in our collective effort to fight COVID-19. We also recognize that in this interconnected world, we must look beyond our own borders to support our businesses and our people. We know that businesses and workers depend on stability, predictability, and open global supply chains to get access to the goods and the services that they need when they need them. That's why I'm working hard with my international counterparts to prevent unnecessary trade bar barriers from going up. And as COVID-19 is disproportionately impacting groups like women entrepreneurs and small business owners, people who are already underrepresented in global trade even before this crisis. International cooperation and collaboration is vital to ensuring our ongoing efforts are inclusive and sustainable. And as we look to restarting our economy, we must ensure that everyone can continue to access the benefits of trade. Canada is working with our international partners, including the G20, the World Trade Organization, and APEC, and others, to keep the trade and supply chains open, to remove unnecessary tariffs on personal protective equipment and medical supplies, and to support the essential Sectors like agriculture access the global marketplace, especially at a critical time like this. Our work continues so that Canadian companies can continue doing business around the world so that Canadians can get the food, the medicine, and other essential goods that they can rely on. Canada believes that a reliable, rules-based international trading system with the WTO at its core is crucial for businesses of every size in every sector across every region of the country. Canada, with Ambassador DeBoer leading the charge in Geneva, has played a leadership role in three recent joint statements with like-minded WTO nations. The first saw 42 WTO members reiterate the need to maintain predictable and rules-based trade amid COVID-19. The second saw 28 WTO members reinforce international cooperation on trade in agriculture and agri-food products, ensuring people in Canada and around the world can access the food and agricultural products that they need. The third saw 49 WTO members commit to addressing the immediate economic challenges faced by micro, small and medium-sized businesses throughout this crisis and beyond. These statements help build resilience and prepare the foundation for future trade policy actions, ultimately supporting businesses around the world to access more customers and to create more jobs. These statements are more than just expressions of principle. They help to build resilience and prepare the ground for future trade policy actions to address the challenges we face. 
to ensure that the WTO addresses the realities of trade, uh, of trade today, Canada has taken concrete steps in creating the Ottawa Group on WTO reform. A family of WTO members united in their commitment to strengthen, a, to strengthen and to modernize the WTO. I will be convening a virtual meeting of my Ottawa Group counterparts very soon to carry this conversation forward. But Canada and the other 12 WTO members of the Ottawa Group can only do so much. Ultimately, WTO reform efforts will require the engagement of all members to succeed. So bringing in that same spirit of determination and cooperation that so many in the international community have shown in their COVID-19 response to modernizing the WTO so that we can continue to do this important work. And after all, the best way for us to get through this, Canada believes, through these challenges that face us today, is by facing them together and by working together. Thank you. Merci beaucoup. Thank you very much, uh, Minister Ng, for your uh, remarks. Let me now turn it over uh, to uh, Jeff Schott uh, to hear from him. Jeff? Thank you very much, Annabelle. And uh, I have little that I could add to the very fine remarks of Minister Ng. I think she has expressed the optimism that we need uh, to work together going forward. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I live in Washington and it's very hard to be optimistic uh, because we had a crisis in the trading system before the pandemic and the pandemic has made it worse. And we see some of the responses of the US government and others uh, that uh, are running counter to some of the cooperative uh, ambitions that Minister Ng has talked about and is working for. And, and I strongly congratulate her for her efforts uh, uh, and, and uh, hope that they bear fruit sooner rather than later. Uh, but we have seen governments, because of the demand shock uh, that has reduced economic output and, and caused massive unemployment in many countries, we've seen countries resort to beggar thy neighbor policies through the imposition of export controls, through import restrictions, uh, through uh, uh, various uh, uh, recovery uh, programs that have introduced massive resources to bail out national firms caught in the demand downdrift. Uh, this has been a level of state intervention across the economy that seems unprecedented for Western democracies. Now, uh, when governments have gotten together in the G20 and the G7 uh, in WTO forums, uh, they have talked about the need to avoid, at, uh, whenever necessary, uh, taking actions that are not in compliance with WTO rules. But we all know that the WTO uh, rule book is sometimes ambiguous and often uh, has exceptions for health and safety or national security uh, uh, reasons that allow the imposition of export controls or import restrictions uh, on, on a rather uh, flexible basis. And we've seen many countries do that, uh, even though leadership would argue they should avoid invoking the rights that exist under the WTO uh, to uh, uh, interfere with trade and investment that is disrupting supply chains. Businesses have had to deal with that. Uh, they're the ones that have to figure out how best to work in, uh, in a climate of, 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 of at least short-term uh, uh, demand, uh, 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 big drop in demand. And uh, they have been trying to alter their supply chains, restructure them, in some cases reshoring, but often building in redundancies uh, to ensure that there's adequate production in, uh, to, to, feed, uh, to feed their uh, adequate supplies to feed their product, uh, production facilities. Uh, this means looking internationally and maintaining international ties, uh, 
because disruptions in supply chains have also occurred in countries where the suppliers are domestic. Uh, look at our meatpacking industry in the United States, for example, uh, but in many other areas as well. So it is a combination of some restructuring, some needed redundancy in supply chains, uh, which will add costs to be sure, but probably are a necessary insurance policy against future shocks uh, uh, from, from policy changes or pandemics. Uh, and in that context, I think uh, the WTO uh, and, and, and WTO member governments uh, need to look forward, uh, but start working right away on the key challenges that are going to arise as we move out of uh, the pandemic, as hopefully the pandemic abates, and start the process of recovering from the deep uh, losses that have been occurred in the past few months. That will require uh, looking at a number of issues that have been on the, on the international trade agenda for decades. First and foremost, access to medicines, which has been a contentious issue in the WTO for a long time, but now is critical as many uh, companies around the world are struggling and working fiercely to develop new vaccines and therapeutics to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. As that succeeds, there has to be a way to ensure that there is access to these vaccines, that the vaccines can be produced in quantities sufficient to meet global demand, and that, supply, and that distribution channels are open so that rich and poor alike have access to, the, to these vaccines. This is a, a, a global pandemic, and it won't be resolved uh, unless there is a global response that covers rich and poor alike. Uh, this gets into many issues of intellectual property, but it also uh, other more traditional border measures that uh, need to be looked at in the spirit of resolving the, uh, uh, the conflict. I've been mostly negative, uh, Annabelle, but uh, there is one, uh, an area that uh, offers some hope, and that is the WTO has been working on digital trade. And as most of us who have been shut, uh, shut at home or have found out that uh, the operation of, of e-commerce is particularly important and welcome and has been a new source of economic activity and job creation. Uh, and I think this only indicates that governments should redouble their efforts uh, to bridge the gaps in positions that have slowed progress on developing new rules on digital trade. Uh, so that uh, the opportunities for expanding trade and investment are opened up as economies open up going forward. So brief introductory remarks, uh, but hope this helps uh, start the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff, uh, to you as well. And again, uh, thank you to uh, Minister Inc. for uh, some, some very fine uh, remarks indeed. So a number of issues, I think, to unpack in uh, both of your introductory uh, remarks. Uh, so let me take the point about uh, robustness of uh, supply chains. Uh, so Jeff, you were mentioning that, uh, you know, we're gonna probably see uh, greater uh, rebalancing uh, towards uh, resilience, uh, towards uh, redundancy, uh, to make sure that, you know, efficiency seeking uh, value chains uh, also incorporate a greater element of uh, risk uh, of risk management. And I think you pointed out the case uh, about, you know, this, this becomes very critical uh, when we think, for instance, about the vaccine for COVID-19, uh, where we need the vaccine, of course, to be, uh, to be developed, to be tested. Uh, but once we're, we're ready to go, it's going to be, you know, we're going to need to produce it in, in several places around the world and create lo uh, links uh, we'll need to keep open so that the vaccine can reach uh, everyone across the world. So I want to link this to a uh, first question that I would like to um, pose to uh, Minister Ng, uh, which is what kind of trade policies do you think are needed uh, to improve the robustness of global value chains? Uh, because we're talking about vaccines here, but we're also talking about food products and we're talking about more broadly, uh, how do we make sure that these supply chains that we're very focused on efficiency, uh, 
uh, can work in an environment where you're going to need to ramp up production, you're going to meet uh, increased supply, and to make sure that these goods can be delivered uh, to where they are needed. Minister, let me, let me turn it over to you now. I guess I had to unmute a little bit. Um, that's absolutely a very, very good question. And, uh, and indeed, you know, top of mind and continues to be on my mind and many, many others uh, here in our government to ensure that, uh, so that, you know, so to ensure that, uh, so that we are on a track to, um, you know, to enable that very scenario that you described to emerge. So we know that, uh, that, that the shocks that have been caused right now, we understand um, the, disruptions to the international supply chains it's under significant pressure you know all around the world it's why we need to make sure we're not you know that we do the work to prevent new trade barriers from going up and um and make sure that when you know that uh, that countries that have um to ensure that we collectively do the work to make sure they're targeted they're transparent they're proportionate and that they're temporary so the advantage that um, the, the advantage of working together as we need to um, with our international partners, so that we can ensure that dependability and that you know that predictability of the global supply chains can continue to do their work is absolutely essential. Um, I think now more than ever. We can't use, we should not be using COVID-19 as an excuse to stop trading. We should not use COVID-19 um, as, a, you know, as a way of being able to erect protectionist measures and trade policies. And in fact, now more than ever, we have to collaborate and find uh, those like-minded countries uh, to be able to, uh, to, to essentially work together so that we can ensure not only the safety of our people around medical supplies and those essential goods that is absolutely critical in the production of them and then the access to them globally to everywhere around the globe, including those developing countries, because I think it's only that that we're actually going to get to uh, both prosperity, eventual prosperity for our for our businesses, but ultimately in the short term, the health and safety of all of our people here in Canada and indeed around the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Minister. Um, let me now bring in Jeff uh, and, uh, and, and take one, one question from the audience, which is related to what the Minister was saying, which is, we have here Fernando Laguarda asking, can you be, be specific about what is meant by international cooperation on trade? Uh, what concrete actions require cooperation and what form does that cooperation take? I think the minister was making reference before uh, to three joint initiatives that a number of countries have taken in the context of the WTO. And I would say that the common thread across those initiatives is to keep trade lanes open. Um, and, and I think Minister Eng, you were saying uh, this will set the tone for future actions uh, to come in this area. So, uh, Jeff, uh, what do you think is, you know, what is it that we mean by international trade cooperation? Let me, let me start. I think uh, Minister Ng really set the broad guidelines for the answer to your question. Uh, but what we need are as a practical matter, are the major trading nations to get together, to cooperate, to, to keep the mar markets open. And the G20 attempted to do that, but wiggled their way out of commitments that changed their existing policies, which in some cases have resulted in export controls or import restrictions uh, to uh, garner scarce supplies of, of medicines or medical equipment uh, or foodstuffs. So what is, is, is more appropriate and what is more needed are what middle-level powers have been doing, uh, New Zealand, Singapore, uh, Canada has joined in many of these, uh, in uh, cooperating and saying we are not going to uh, uh, impose new border measures, export or import, we are not going to invoke rights that we have because we know if countries do that, it is going to impede the process of economic recovery. Uh, 
Uh, we're not seeing that from the major trading nations that have to be in contributing and leading by example. And unfortunately, I'll name names. It's the United States, it's the European Union, it's China, uh, have all imposed export restrictions that have complicated and encumbered the process of economic recovery. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Jeff. Um, Minister, this, I, I want to take it from where Jeff was saying about the role of uh, mid-sized countries uh, like uh, Canada. Uh, you know, from your perspective, what is the role of a mid-sized country like Canada uh, to uh, help us, uh, you know, navigate the new sort of uh, COVID-19 era in the context of the WTO? And I would like to link that then after your intervention, uh, bringing Stephen in with a question that we have from Carlos Green Mobraga in the audience, who says, uh, a liberal trade system cannot survive without the explicit support of the largest world economies, as Jeff was mentioning. Given the growing US-China tensions among COVID-19, is it inevitable that we will fall back into a fragmented trading system organizing spheres of influence with echoes of the Cold War? So, uh, Minister Ng, to you, what is the role of mid-sized countries like Canada? And then, Stephen, can we actually go forward without the support of the larger players, as, as Jeff was uh, saying? Minister Ng. Yeah, absolutely, Annabelle. I mean, Canada, like every other WTO member, I mean, shares that goal of ensuring that trade flows are smooth, there's predictability, it moves as freely as possible, and uh, that's essential because businesses need that stability. And, um, and the WTO, of course, has been an important convener for countries sort of over time. Um, and what Canada can do, and I would say we have been doing, uh, we are able to build some consensus. We're able to take uh, the leadership in bringing together like-minded countries who do believe in the role of the WTO, who do believe in multilateral um, systems, who do believe in a rules-based system that really will help and guide all of us to the benefit of our people. So I think the role that Canada plays, and we indeed do, it's why we created the Ottawa Group with a number of countries where we can have uh, those, where we can bring people together and have those conversations and those dialogues and try to build some consensus around some of those very difficult issues that we're all facing. And with that consensus building, bring it out to, to a wider group. And absolutely, I mean, you know, to, to the other major economies. So we are able to build that consensus. We are able to take that leadership. And I think that that uh, begins to set a tone, but it also helps really have those uh, conversations uh, with others who are like-minded in an effort to be able to put those ideas on the table for further, uh, for further collaboration and for further, we hope, adoption, um, because we're able to take on that, uh, that consensus building leadership uh, convening role. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it is true, I guess, that in the context of a place like the WTO, uh, consensus building is something that happens a step at a time, uh, and that you need leadership coming from different parts of the world to actually make it, uh, so make it happen. Uh, so I think what you're, what you're doing uh, is, is actually a great service, uh, not only to your citizens, but actually uh, to citizens across, across the world. Uh, but it is true that we also need the big, the big players. Uh, so uh, Stephen, uh, let me now bring you in uh, with this question that we received from, uh, from Carlos Primo Braga in our audience. Uh, to sh are we gonna see greater fragmentation in the system in a post-COVID-19 world? Uh, what do you think? So I, 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 I don't, I want, I think it's important for all of us to take a step back. COVID-19 has not been around for, for very long. So we've, we've seen, as, as Jeffrey has pointed out, we've seen a number of large members take actions that we think run counter to that spirit of open and liberal markets. But these are still early days. And to speak to um, what Minister Ng was saying about the middle powers, about organizations like the Ottawa Group, uh, to build consensus, we need to start making the case uh, and for the larger members to, to take on 
this, this notion and to remember that it is in all of our economic interests to keep these markets open. And not only is it in our economic interest, it's also the way we're going to collectively deal with the pandemic. We need to have open supply chains. We need to have, as Jeffrey said, this, these multiple sources of PPE, of, of all of these materials. And so we need to start making, um, as middle powers, as the Ottawa Group, start creating that narrative to remind the larger, the larger members. But, but let's, not, let's not get too carried away about what the larger members are doing. It's, it's early days. And I think that the case can be, uh, can be made. We're already seeing some, some change in attitudes with respect to, um, to the EU, for example. And look, at let's, let's be serious. I mean, for, for many governments, of course, the reaction is to, draw the, to pull up the drawbridge and to say, we, we need to take care of ourselves. And, and then we need to start having that conversation about why that's not actually useful for our own economic or health interests. So I, I'd like to remain optimistic that there's a role for countries like Canada and that there is a narrative that the larger trading partners will, will start to adopt. Mm. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen. Um, let me maybe uh, take it from, from here and, and, and go back to say, okay, so we're facing COVID-19 uh, right now. Uh, we also had a major disruption uh, to the global economy in the, uh, in the, with the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, and at that time, uh, we saw countries coming uh, together uh, to reject protectionism, basically say, no, we're not going to turn uh, inwards in this times of financial uncertainty, um, and committing themselves not to raise uh, barriers to trade and investment, not to impose new expert restrictions, or to implement WTO inconsistent measures to stimulate um, exports. Uh, so fast forward to now, uh, 12 years later, where we are facing a the dramatic crisis of COVID-19, and we see a different role uh, being played by the G20. So I know that Jeff, you have written uh, about this topic, so, and you mentioned it briefly. I'd like to hear from you, what do you think has been the response of the G20, specifically in the area of trade and investment in the context of COVID-19? And then also hear from Minister Ng, um, in the sense that, you know, what role do you think the G20 should have in, a, in this divided world, but what role for the G20 uh, in fighting uh, protectionism and keeping those trade lanes open? So Jeff, let me turn it over to you first. And you need to unmute, Jeff. First, let me start by saying, uh, Stephen is right, that we are only a few months into this crisis. And uh, government officials are learning by doing, and they realize more and more that they need to work together uh, to, to come up with global solutions. It's, there's no national solution to a crisis uh, unless you want to seal yourself off for a long, long time. Uh, I think it's unfortunate to, to try to compare the financial crisis of of 12 years ago with, with what we're facing today. Because the financial crisis of 12 years ago was generated by imbalances in, 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 in many economies uh, and required a, a lengthy period of recuperation and restoration. Uh, there really wasn't a, a major problem in, 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 in most economies uh, earlier this year before the pandemic hit. Uh, and what we've seen is a sharp contraction, a much sharper contraction than the, during the financial crisis, uh, to basically uh, mitigate the uh, spread of, of the COVID-19 uh, uh, virus. So uh, that's a, a, a difference. The G20 acting uh, 12 years ago made very broad and extensive pledges, but in hindsight, they didn't implement them. Uh, so there was a lot of good talk, but a lot of the trade measures, at least, uh, were, were spotty. Uh, the implementation was spotty and ineffectual. Uh, I think uh, today uh, we're seeing that uh, 
the, the road to recovery uh, can be quicker than from the financial crisis if we work together. Uh, in 2008, we had strong leadership from the United States. Uh, today, uh, there is concern that America First is constraining the scope of U.S. global leadership. And, and that's my biggest worry uh, uh, going forward. But I think uh, there, there, there is some room for working together, uh, but it has to be shared responsibility and shared commitments. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. Um, uh, Minister Ng, uh, your, your experience in working in the context of the G20, uh, what, what role for G20 really in the current world in, in, trying, to, uh, in trying to bring greater cooperation to, uh, uh, to deal with this uh, COVID-19 situation? Annabelle, I think Minister Ng has left the, uh, the meeting, unfortunately. Oh, we're so that brings that. you that brings you in then, uh, Stephen, uh, <laughs> and uh, and let me sort of turn that question to you and maybe add one one point, which is so so we have this the, the G20 and the larger economies. We've heard some mid-sized economies are actually um, are actually sort of bringing in new initiatives. What more can we expect from your front? What are you thinking? What, what should be next uh, as, as we pave the way with these joint initiatives uh, that were mentioned before? Uh, what, you know, what additional trade action uh, can, can we expect, at least uh, the initiative coming from, uh, from Canada? So I, I, would, I would say this, and this is what makes the pandemic different than the the political rhetoric around the 2008 um, Great Recession, and that there, there is a, a fairly sophisticated conversation already starting about what this means with respect to e-commerce, and Jeff has pointed this out um, already. And also, as Minister Ng pointed out, 46 or 47 WTO members issued a statement with respect to MISMEs. There's a real sense that the pandemic will be very harmful uh, to MISMEs and that we have to start talking about the rule book that will actually be helpful to, to MISMEs. And this is not, this has not been a very developed conversation, but I think it's going to, to start happening. The one conversation that's really not happening at all yet um, that needs to happen is around trade and services. This, this is another aspect of uh, COVID-19 of the pandemic that we need to uh, that we need to be talking about. It, it, at, at first blush, it's about you know, medical professionals and health professionals, but it's also other aspects of the services sector. Tourism services, for example, is, is really um, getting punched in the head over the, over the pandemic. And so is this an opportunity for us to have that conversation and to talk about liberalizing and creating a new rule book that facilitates uh, trade in, in services? Most immediately, I would say right now, the discussion, and in the Ottawa group as well, there's a fair bit of interest around, or actually a lot of interest around medical supplies. And what can we do to uh, reduce the barriers to trade in medical supplies, keep those markets um, open and those supply chains open? So there's, there is scope for, for work, but I, I find it interesting that even 10, 12 weeks after uh, the pandemic, we've already started moving that discussion to what, what we see are some of the, the knock-on effects of, of closing our economies with respect to MISMEs, with respect to um, e-commerce and, and supply chains. Hmm. Thank you. Um, I'd like to bring um, a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and we have some very good questions here, uh, but I'm gonna sort of uh, bring two of them into one. Uh, which is from uh, Gopalakrishanan Manikandan and from Matthew Wilson, which are bringing in the development angle of this, which is that we know global supply chains uh, have been instrumental in, uh, in integrating a number of developing countries into the global economy, uh, and reducing poverty in these countries, uh, and, and overall generating, uh, you know, promoting growth and, and development in these places. And when we see the, the question is, um, you know, going forward, you see fundamental shifts in global value chains in terms of manufacturing activities shifting to developed countries 
in order to address their own socioeconomic needs, how the global cooperation will result in development outcomes for developing countries. Uh, and then a concern expressed by uh, Matthew uh, Wilson from the ITC uh, on whether the impact of some of this, um, you know, measures to build resilience or others, uh, in particular on onshoring or nearshoring, uh, what would be the impact on some producers in developing countries, uh, particularly in Africa? And I would like to add to that, which is, okay, so what would be the impact of, you know, reconfiguration of global supply chains on developing countries? And I would like to bring in, you know, is it important for many of these developing countries that, you know, greater cooperation on these critical trade issues takes place um, as a means of making sure that global value chains are reconfigured uh, based on fundamentals uh, rather than policy uh, restrictions, if you wish. So, Jeff, do you want to come in on this one? Well, I, I will start off, though only one of the three of us has represented a developing country uh, in international uh, negotiations. So I think uh, she should also uh, add her perspective, her knowledge on, uh, on... So you're putting the question back to me and I'll take it, but let me hear from you first. Okay. Uh, well, I, I think it's critical uh, that developing countries are not disengaged from supply chains. And there is a risk that that'll happen, uh, uh, particularly as major economies try to subsidize the reshoring of investment. Uh, and uh, there are some countries that have been doing that, uh, devoting lots of resources, uh, South Korea, Taiwan, India, for example. But my impression is that it was mostly re uh, a reaction to the US-China trade war uh, and, and trying to develop a defensive strategy against that and wasn't meant to bring in all investment uh, back home. Uh, I think for developing countries who don't have the resources to do that extensive subsidization, uh, it's critical to uh, improve the investment climate in their, in their economies so that they can uh, support and encourage more investment for regional production uh, this will be critical with regard to medicines and other and, and, and medical supplies, for example. Uh, and uh, that's a first step. Uh, there, there could be some, some work on an investment facilitation agreement, like the trade facilitation agreement that was developed in the WTO uh, seven years ago, uh, that would help them in that regard and provide technical and financial uh, uh, assistance. I think that issue needs to be moved up on the priority, uh, uh, in priority on the WTO agenda. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, I think you're, you're, you're right. Huh? And uh, to me, one, one important uh, sort of aspect of, uh, of this discussion on, on supply chains and international trade cooperation is this angle, uh, you know, the, the, the development angle, if you wish, uh, which is uh, supply chains have been instrumental for countries like Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam, uh, my own country, Costa Rica, and uh, many others, uh, to actually you know, integrate them into the world economy, as I said, generate good jobs, uh, and, and start climbing the ladder of, uh, of development. Uh, and we know that, uh, in a way, uh, technology was already posing uh, some, uh, some challenges. Uh, the um, sort of geopolitical competition was also weighing down on it. But for, for many of these countries, uh, I think a critical point is, uh, is keeping these supply chains uh, open, uh, supply chains flowing, trade links open. And this brings us back to some of the initiatives that are being discussed in the context of, uh, of the WTO, but also in the context of countries that are like-minded or uh, also in the context of, of regional uh, dimensions. And, uh, and, you know, I think we have talked here of, of, of many different areas because this is a, a broad topic, but you, you both have been mentioning, so there are like a orders of priority, if you wish. 
The one first point is to address everything that is uh, needed to fight COVID-19. Uh, and here the question, you know, we have uh, one question from Rashid uh, Benjaloun and he says, you know, it would be a good idea really to start uh, telling less developed countries that because you cannot get things from other parts of the world, you need to start producing uh, your own things uh, back home. Is that really a, a good idea or is it really even feasible? Uh, so that's one first order of magnitude. Um, there are other topics that, uh, that then become very relevant. Uh, and I think that you both have mentioned, and we have also a couple of questions from the audience, uh, the topic of e-commerce. Uh, because uh, if anything, uh, COVID-19 uh, has sort of moved us to that uh, dimension with a greater push uh, than, than we had before. But we still don't have uh, global rules in this area. We have a number of trade agreements that incorporate uh, chapters on e-commerce, uh, but we still have very limited set of provisions at the at the multilateral level. So I'd like to pose the question to both of you. Uh, do you think e-commerce negotiations in the WTO uh, should actually take a priority uh, set of uh, position right now? Uh, and is that something that is feasible? Can we can we expect to see uh, progress uh, in this uh, in this context? Uh, so maybe, uh, Jeff, I bring this to you first, and then Stephen, I'll, I'll bring you in as well. Well, actually, let me, let me pass it to Stephen, because he's uh, in, in the uh, seat of responsibility as ambassador, uh, and I'm, I'm just the kibitzer on the sidelines, and then, uh, then I can follow up. So this is, um, well, thank you for that, Jeff. Um, Yes, I do think this needs to be a priority, and I think there's a number of lessons that we've uh, we've learned. Some of them you've you've spoken about, Jeff, and, and you, Annabelle, have spoken about already. That that this the pandemic sort of underscores the need for global rules with respect to electronic commerce. But it's also interesting in how. Uh, the fact that we're now meeting virtually has actually moved the discussion forward as to how we might actually negotiate an e-commerce agreement. And so on the 11th of June, uh, the JSI will, will get back together virtually. And for the first time, they're going to be engaging with capital-based experts. Our hope is that over time, and by over time, I mean in the next couple of weeks or months, they'll start to be able to make decisions and move the negotiations forward in a virtual platform. So there's both the sort of the conceptual notions about what e-commerce means, and then there's the very practical aspects to it. Because what we're hearing at the WTO from many countries is that they can't use a virtual platform for decision-making. That still is gonna require the old-fashioned, we get into the CR or Room W and, and hammer out a deal. Well, in the, in the current pandemic and in the current health context, that doesn't necessarily make sense. So we've got the conceptual issue that we need to address and the practical issue. And the pandemic is sort of driving both of those together in an interesting way. I think e-commerce will, will lead us on that. Mm, that's that's a very interesting point that you're that you're making in terms of you know from all of these changes that we will uh, get as a result of uh, of the pandemic that trade negotiations uh, can actually there's a, a place for virtual trade negotiations to take uh, place which uh, which would be something very interesting and we have a question here uh, precisely from uh, from Jackson Wong who was asking. Will the COVID-19 uh, accelerate WTO negotiations on e-commerce? Uh, and it's interesting that even if it does not accelerate those negotiations, which we hope will do, it's, it's interesting that it may, you know, sort of introduce a new modality uh, of, uh, of uh, trade negotiations, which is uh, uh, something that, that uh, it'd be interesting to, to see how, how it evolves. Huh? Um, let me uh, just, uh, we're coming to, a, uh, to an end. Can I just add one point on this, uh, yes, Annabelle? Uh, rules are one thing and they're important. Uh, and there is already uh, one good uh, proposal in terms of rules that have been put forward by the United States and its uh, trading partners and the TPP and uh, in, the, in North America and in, uh, with US-Japan that sets out an agreement on digital trade. 
But in a di uh, there, there are still areas of, of, of controversy with regard to privacy and other issues that uh, complicate the ability of getting a broader multilateral agreement. But in addition to rules, it's important to emphasize that you have to also emphasize investment in the infrastructure needed to conduct mm. e-commerce, to have the appropriate platforms, the financial platforms and the like, the telecommunications resources, so that uh, uh, countries can take advantage uh, of this. And that's a, a, a business investment decision that can involve both private companies and, 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 and governments. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. Um, I guess one, uh, one important uh, point that, uh, that we can take out of this conversation is that, um, you know, ultimately the reconfiguration of global supply chains uh, is a business decision. Uh, it will be based on fundamentals like, uh, you know, cost of production, uh, transportation costs, uh, availability of, uh, of uh, resources uh, and, uh, and others. Uh, but the important part is, uh, you know, how can we, uh, how can countries or governments uh, work together to ensure uh, that those decisions can be taken uh, without, um, you know, without policies that, that have the aim of uh, moving those decisions in one direction or another uh, in particular, because that may end up being very, uh, very detrimental in, uh, in many different ways. Um, now, uh, I think we're coming uh, to the end uh, of, our, uh, of our first episode of uh, Trade Winds. Uh, I want to, thanks, uh, to thank very much uh, Minister Ng, uh, Ambassador DeBoer, uh, my colleague uh, Jeff Schott, uh, for a very interesting conversation. Uh, I think that I have been taking notes here and I have like my next 10 episodes of Trade Winds already, uh, uh, my topics lined up, uh, you know, be it uh, e-commerce, be it this idea of tourism, uh, can, you know, are we gonna need to come together and uh, forge uh, rules to be able to foster uh, uh, tourism a critical service for so many uh, developing uh, countries as well. So we got a very long list of, uh, of uh, topics, but I think this has been uh, from, from my side at least a, a very good uh, start of our conversations, the types of conversations that we expect to have in, uh, in trade winds. Uh, to all of you who have been, who have joined us uh, or who will be listening to us uh, later on, uh, I, I would very much appreciate your comments and uh, suggestions as to the uh, way uh, forward. Um, and let me just uh, conclude, you know, of course, by thanking, uh, by thanking Minister Ng, uh, uh, Ambassador DeBoer, thanking Jeff again, uh, and uh, saying that I'm delighted that in our uh, next session, uh, we will have uh, Arancha Gonzalez Laya, the uh, Spanish Minister of International Affairs, uh, who will be joining us uh, to discuss WTO uh, in the post-COVID-19 world. Uh, and this will take place on next Wednesday, June 3rd. Um, so please uh, follow us on uh, Twitter at uh, PIAE uh, Tradewinds uh, to learn more about, uh, about this next uh, session. And I hope that you will also share with your friends uh, that there's a new, uh, a new webinar in town, uh, Tradewinds, uh, where hopefully we will all learn from our esteemed guests about what is the future of global commerce in the area of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, so again, thanks a lot, Jeff. Uh, th uh, Stephen, thank you very much. Uh, Mary as well. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us. Goodbye.